This is Inspiring Design, where unique innovators come together to share their knowledge, share their insight, and keep us up to date with the latest industry trends. And here's your host, Rashan Senanayak. What's up, listeners? We are live with episode 16 of Inspiring Design with yours truly, Rashan. Today is all about urban design, and I have here with me one of the best industry experts from RPS, Peter Edgerton. Peter has been part of the urban design and planning profession for the last 31 years. He's the current lead urban designer for RPS. Peter is based in Brisbane, but has a wide perspective from leading projects from Sydney to Port Douglas to New Zealand and in Western Australia. His focus is integrating design and planning expertise with sustainable development practices to create successful urban spaces for living, working and visiting. Impressive indeed. And thank you so much, Peter, for giving up your time. No problems, Rashan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, Can we uh, start by understanding a little bit of background and experience of yourself? Sure thing. Um, I grew up in Harvey Bay in uh, North Queensland, so uh, quite near Fraser Island. Um, so you haven't always been in Brisbane? Haven't always been in Brisbane. No, that was that was my uh, early years of schooling, was in um, a small country town, effectively at the time, uh, and then moved to Brisbane for secondary school and then went to university at the University of Queensland and studied town planning. Uh, finished that in 1988 and then worked on the Gold Coast for a number of years before returning back to Brisbane and really starting from scratch with then Pike Mills McNulty was the name of the company prior to RPS. Wow, right. I see. So that's actually, I've visited your office multiple times, but I've never known that. There you go. Yeah, quite, quite a few name changes along the way, but we yep. might cover that off as we, <laughs> as we go through some uh, project backgrounds. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I, you do draw on your, your background in terms of um, uh, when I'm doing smaller country towns and smaller things, you rely on that first the Gold Coast, which was the Ritz and the Glitz of the 80s on the Gold Coast. My yep. first job was um, the Mirage Resorts on the Gold Coast, and I thought oh, all, wow. all jobs were like that yep. um, with, with the skaters. <laughs> um, but uh, no, that was uh, quite an unusual period, but uh, a really good learning phase. Yeah, yeah. Well, today's about urban design. Uh, we've been covering off different design disciplines in each episode, and this one's actually something that I'm really excited about because I think it, I feel like it's almost a big brother of architecture. And um, I'm not sure. That's why I want to learn and clarify the lines um, for a lot of the listeners as well. In your experience, how do you define what is urban design? Um, it, it's a really tricky and difficult area to explain um, and yet it's quite an easy area to, to work in to, uh, to practice in because of the ability the fluid you know the fluid nature of, of the description and what you can be involved in. The easiest way I can describe it is it's really sits in between the three core disciplines of architecture, landscape architecture and town planning and I, and I position, uh, urban design in the middle of those three. Yeah. Within that, you can be more of an architectural-based urban designer, and um, most architects 
do and can call themselves urban designers because right. effectively that's what they're doing. And I'll, I'll just at a bigger scale. Just well, it's getting them to often think beyond the brief of the particular building to think outside the boundaries. Now, some are better at it than others. Mm-hmm. Some are, are, you know, go wildly crazy outside the boundaries <laughs> and actually have to pull them back in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that, that's architecture, and uh, I think architects would think that architecture is the big brother of urban design. <laughs> um, then there's then the, the architecture bubble can drift closer to landscape architecture, mm-hmm. so that's um, a little bit more like streetscape um, type public realm applications. Yep. You know, you really need to know uh, a little bit more about the detail of landscape architecture to be into that space or you can drift towards town planning which is mm-hmm. more the master planning of new communities or new suburbs or infill and that's more about the approval mechanism and how do you get it delivered so a really clever urban designer can bounce between all three mm-hmm. and um, if you're really really clever you surround yourself with people who have uh a range of those disciplines and yep. then you can constantly tap into them so in our, our organization a third come from an architecture training background a third from landscape architecture and a third from town planning wow. and that's the preferred mix yeah because it, you can see it in the way people operate there's mm. a slightly different approach to particular problems so you that basically means you will need to be able to jump between those specialities almost if you're an urban designer I feel like is that is that correct? Yeah, there's a bit of that, and there's also a bit of knowing when to stop as well. Yeah, like when when am I outside of my discipline, and I need to speak to my landscape architecture colleagues and let them take carriage of this, or you know when am I into the built form? When we'll do when we do built form, we call it massing. You know, to us, all the buildings are. Uh, just blocks. white in colour and white <laughs> blocks. You know that's what yep. we're trying to do. Or maybe the streetscape might have some colour in it. And above that, we don't don't really uh, have an opinion. And even when we do our drawings, you know, we draw our buildings really bland mm-hmm. because that's not our contribution. That we leave that to the architect. So we're trying to, you know, leave where you leave a vacuum, people will fill it with good ideas. Yep. So you're trying to leave that little vacuum on things. Yeah. And then town planning. You know, it's you know, I'm not going to be able to spell out all the approval mechanisms and all every part of the town planning process, I have a broad knowledge of it, but I rely on my colleagues to, to fill in the gaps. Outside of that, core ring that you're bouncing around as an urban designer, there's engineering, traffic engineering, um, uh, hydrology, stormwater management, ecology, uh, all of those other disciplines, you're drawing on all of those as well. So you have to have a knowledge of who does what, when are they, when is it appropriate, and how do I utilise their skill set? So often we're sort of sitting in the middle of all of that. Wow, that's a seriously impressive place to be in. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun, but it, you've got to trust people. You've got yeah. to trust people in their discipline and know yeah. when to when to sort of kick in and when to kick out. When to let, when to let people do their thing mm-hmm. 
um, and, and when to sort of give an opinion and, and push. And sometimes you drift into other people's space. So, you know, I love locking horns with traffic engineers yep. um, <laughs> because the way they do things, you know, they shovel a bunch of numbers in a little black box, shake it around and pull out an answer. And I always <laughs> wanted to get in that black box and go, yep. how did you do that? Like, where? how did you get to that? Shake a magic aid ball. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so, but then also trust that, you know, if they, if they stick to their guns and say that, that, that my professional opinion is this, mm-hmm. that you've got to respect that, yep. even if you don't necessarily understand how they get to that. Yeah. No, I love it. I think, um, and one of the questions that I get asked all the time from our listeners is, um, how do you enter and what's the process of becoming that particular design designer? Um, for example, how do you become an architect or a landscape architect yeah. or interior designer? So in this case, how does one become an urban designer? Is there a now arduous qualification and registration process like say in architecture or landscape or is it a bit more flexible? It's very flexible mm-hmm. um, and in a way that drives the architecture, landscape architecture, town planning disciplines nuts because they are quite, but you know, all three of those in their very, in their different ways have their, um, their structures and their organisation and they are trying to protect their, their field but urban designers tend to sort of float in, float out. Um, so, you know, I, I understand their annoyance, but it, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, you, you are pulling from all those disciplines. So I'm, I am a member of PEER, the Planning Institute, because my training and my background is a town planning degree. Yeah. But I probably work closer with landscape architecture and architecture than I do town planning. So it's, a, it's mm-hmm. an interesting mix. How do you get into it? It's uh, urban design is is a relatively new field. Um, I think if you went back forty years, the term probably didn't exist. Um, it might have been a couple of uh, uses, and it certainly in America, you know, they used to call it town founding. Oh wow! Um, okay, for example, this is all new information to me. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's a really interesting background how it. Um, how it all came came together. I, I personally got into it. My father was a land surveyor, so I see. Um, in their day, the surveyor did everything. So um, the surveyor was the town planner. They were the surveyor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even the engineer in in New South Wales and in New Zealand. Um, and you know, if they had been a member of a local authority for over five years, they automatically were given a town planning and an urban design. Um, qualification. That's mm-hmm. actually how it used to work in local government in Queensland. Yeah. Um, so uh, I uh, saw my father doing designs, you know, of, of subdivisions and layouts. And even as a kid, I thought I could fix that for you. Um, <laughs> you know, how old were you then? Uh, Twelve. Or so. Wow. There you go. You. Um, I think you're meant to be in this in this industry. <laughs> yeah. It's more the maths was dominating, which I is see. you know the way surveyors historically laid things out. That's why our cities are in grids. Yep. Because the chain's 20 metres wide and that's why all streets are 20 metres wide. It's a mathematical measurement. It was easy for them to do and straight lines up and over hills are, yep. are easy to lay out if you're in the hot sun whacking pegs in the ground. Yeah. Um, but whereas, you know, now we're a bit with, there's a little bit more to it, there's a little bit more to understand. So when, when I say fix it, I'm being cheeky. It's like to absorb a lot more information and pop out a slightly different answer than, yep. you know, zero degree bearings um, <laughs> and, you know, even measurements. Yeah. So uh, th- that's a little bit on on the background of urban design. So uh, effectively, 
anybody that already has a discipline in architecture, landscape architecture, or town planning can really call themselves an urban designer. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have training, background, or knowledge, or interest, or have studied broader into that area, then you really are going to struggle because you're going to keep following your trained discipline yeah. rather than uh, uh, an understood and a learned discipline, which yeah. is what urban design is. Yeah, look, that completely makes sense. And uh, being in the middle of all those things, it, it does. It, it's quite hard to, I think, control that process to allow that fluid movement. Is, um, is there a registration process or a, or a chartered level, um, say, compared to the Board of Architects that govern urban design? Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there really is nothing. Uh, the the um, organisation of urban designers has tried over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. I think UDEL was the last version of that. Where and UDEL stands for uh, the Urban Design Alliance. I think mm-hmm. is is what it, and that was really all urban designers coming together, trying to say, hey, we're all urban designers coming together. We value this. We put a put a um, a badge on it to say that we're qualified in our areas, but they can never sort of take the next step and go, and what is that qualification? Yeah. Um, you can now study urban design at, at most uh, design-based universities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they'll cover... You Normally, you'll start in um, landscape architecture, architecture or town planning, and you can do urban design as, as a stand-up degree mm-hmm. now. Um, and then you can also do further education in urban design. Yeah. Most of the lecturers, again, would come from another discipline's background but may call themselves urban designers. Yeah. But they equally won't have a qualification as such in urban design. They might have a master's of urban design, uh, but that was normally done through a town planning course. It was exactly the same as the town planning course. It was just called the Masters of Urban Design because yeah. you picked up a couple of different subjects. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's because it's so new, it's really still finding its feet as a discipline like lots of other new disciplines that are out there. Um, oh, definitely. I think even, even through um, speaking to designers such as yourself in different industries, I've found that there are now design disciplines that didn't exist five to ten years ago. Absolutely. So yeah, it's splitting absolutely. off and becoming a central point for a lot of industries. And it's a really cool time, I, th- I think. And it makes sense maybe in five to ten years' time, once that tertiary qualification that's starting to come into play will maybe be required down the track. Who knows? But one of the questions that's been burning in my mind is um, you mentioned that people in town planning having studied that can then become an urban designer. So what exactly is the difference between an urban designer and a town planner? So uh, jokingly, a number of uh, urban designer master planners who have been operating in Australia, we often say that town planners stole our name. I see, right. Because we're actually planning the towns. Wow. Um, they're doing statutory planning. Yep. Um, I, I say that very tongue-in-cheek because, <laughs> you know, town planning is quite a, quite a, it's not a, not a hugely old discipline. In fact, um, RPS, the company I work for, stands for the uh, Rural Planning Service of the UK, RPS, Rural Planning Service wow. of the UK. So it started with an individual town planner who in the UK they've got very contained urban environments mm-hmm. but no one was looking at outside of the urban area in the rural so he started doing town planning applications for farms and rural activities and that's that's where rps uh, came from so wow. 
So town planning is quite a new field as well. It's only probably about 10 years ahead of urban design effectively. So it's got a little bit more structure. The nature of town planning and the nature of getting approvals and um, almost the litigious nature of town planning now means that it has to be a bit more formalised. They try and have CPD training for town planners. They have trouble following through on it because most people like the idea of it and then don't necessarily always do it. So they're struggling themselves to keep that discipline of a of an um, of a field themselves. And then urban design comes along and starts pinching out bits of their of what they think they do as well. Yeah. Um, but I always try and you know with all the town planners that I work with in in my work, I know that there's an urban designer in there somewhere because they did study it at university. Yeah. Um, albeit very briefly nowadays. Um, I think I was very fortunate in the late '80s that we were next to the architecture faculty at Queensland Uni, so mm-hmm. we got to do shared lectures for the first two years at, at uni, which is where I sparked my interest. And I went, yep. you know, I'm more interested in that over there than that over there. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of separated and then went to ge- geosciences, went to GIS rather than architecture. So town planning sort of moved as a faculty into another area. And then we could see it in the nature of the students that came out as graduates. They didn't even know what a contour was. Um, wow. So, you know, we basically train our urban designers from scratch even when they come out of an urban design degree. Yeah. Well, I think um, by the sounds of it, it feels like urban design is the naughty sibling of town planning who's been around for a while and I feel like is evolving and changing the way things have been done. How long has urban design been around as a label? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I would think it, it has been around for a while because it's, it's really a term that architecture would have used mm-hmm. um, describing like a city block versus yep. a site within a block. I think that the would, macro context. Yeah, that would ma- you know if you're trying to describe that ma- macro area, you'd naturally start talking about oh, well, I'm not really doing a building mm. and I'm not really doing a park. So what am I I'm doing? The urban bit. So I must be doing urban design. Yeah, so that's a reasonably logical process to follow. So I imagine outside of the discipline, the term was used quite a lot. Um, as a, almost like a flavour of the month term to try and separate yourself from other people. Yeah. Um, so, so master planning did the same thing, but master planning never held. So what's the difference between a site architect and a master planner? Mm. Not a lot, Yeah. depending on, on what they're doing. Because a lot of the architectural firms conduct master planning skills and I'm actually thinking through what happens in the architectural degree when we're even teaching first years their site currently the project that in the classroom that i had this morning it's all the way through william jolly bridge and queen street and all these public farms it's not a contained site so they're actually considering the broader context of movement the uses of the external buildings and they're not designing a building they're designing an installation that fits into that context and i like the fact that it's now becoming spatial exploration not a building. <laughs> so that's urban design. There you so go. So that, that just, you just described urban design. That's yep. exactly what it is. You're within the urban context, you're trying to facilitate an outcome. Now that might be a building, but might not be. It might be a bus stop or it might be a tree 
uh, or a yep. shade area or a shelter or something like that and you're trying to position where that is and how does it fit in that context. So that's why it's quite natural to drift out of architecture and start talking about But an architect being pure about what the discipline is often feel a, a, an onus to call it architecture even though it's probably urban design yeah because they're worried about drifting into the landscape architect space yeah yeah and you know they, they you know they require the landscape architect so you know we have landscape architectures in our organization and it's always an interesting tap dance you know yeah how far do I go with this before I have to hand it over to my colleagues and then they're doing it in reverse back to you going you know I'm doing something I've probably drifted into this base of the street around my area do I really need to talk to an urban designer I'll say no no you, you have that training you're quite within your capabilities to do that so yeah. so yeah we do we literally bounce like a pinball bouncing between architecture landscape architecture and town planning yeah um, and depends you know is it more urban urban design or is it master planning yeah uh, so we do a lot of large developments you know a thousand hectare master plan community that's master planning. Yeah, but it's still actually called urban design in our in our brief. Yeah, but see, it makes sense, and I think um, it's it's a similar battle between architects and interior designers because a little bit. Yeah. they're doing the building. Where do you? We would technically design the spaces as well, but then where do you draw the line where an interior designer needs to go through? And um, I feel like that pinball analogy works really well because that, I've seen that happen. I've been a pro- part of that process, and. Um, I feel like this is a difference in scale, but we're mm. all kind of headed towards the same outcome of yeah. spatial exploration, designing for an end user. It's the built environment, all falls under those tabs and bringing the environment in, all of those things that we that we design. So it's, it's actually really interesting. Mm. So looking at what an urban designer is, and now I'm getting a clear picture of what an urban design uh, is capable of and is required to do. In your opinion, what are the hard skills and soft skills that we need to have under the belt? Because I do have a lot of um, students that listen to this and teachers who want to guide their students in the right pathway and even for their own interests. What are the skills that they need to look out for and start to develop if they're thinking, you know, one day I want to become an urban designer? I think start you start in your core area. So let's say you start as um, a landscape architect and you 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 study that core area then you try and look for when I'm doing a, a broader area uh, let, let's say it's an urb, it's a, a square a, a civic space um, you'll then start to say okay I, I, I clearly need to have a civil engineer here because I've got pipes and services and things under the road but I'm actually going to touch the buildings on an edge so I really need to either have a little bit of a mind's eye to landscape architecture height building awnings or I go and source an architect to do that with me. Um, I can deal with, now as the landscape architect, I can deal with spatially the ground plane, the, the height, you know, what's over, over my head. Now I need to work out how I'm going to get this thing approved. I actually need to drift into town planning now. So it's um, almost dependent on your where your interest lies. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I always go, you need you need kind of like a core interest to start with and then you can grow. That's your foundation, grow. your passion. Yeah. And and, and my I you, you do come back to your core interests. You know, I I certainly go back to um, the the process that I learned in doing town planning. You rely on that that it's a very structured 
process, which is not dissimilar to what architecture does and not dissimilar to what landscape architecture does, but you have your own sort of form of it. It might be top down, whereas the landscape architect might be bottom up in terms of how they do it. You do see the different people with the different disciplines and how they approach it. You get to the same place. You just come at it from a slightly different angle. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of hands-on skills, like what does an average day as an urban designer look like? Like, do you employ still hand sketching? Do you pull out the yellow trace or do you work on, let's say, one of the CAD softwares or design softwares? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, all of the above. I see. Um, uh, We have just recently put all of our staff back through a design thinking drawing course. Awesome. Because we felt like they were losing their hand-drawn skills a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some wonderful things in technology that we'll talk about in a little while. But, um, you know, resolving an issue with somebody where you grab a napkin and you grab a pen and you go, do you mean this? And they look at it and go, yep, that's what I mean. I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't draw it for you. I just explained it to you. And we draw it and go, do you mean that? And it's very powerful when you when you mm-hmm. do that. Um, and also, we I do most of my drawing now outside of the office, in other people's offices on their desks or out, yep. outside or whatever. You know, I, I use my hand-drawn skills quite a lot. I, it's not – my skills aren't at the level they were probably at uh, when I first started because, you know, we spent days and days and days drawing master plans. So yeah. I, c- I can draw a golf course without a scale ruler now. Wow. I'm That's impressive. Designed way too many golf courses for my own good back in the 80s on the Gold Coast yeah. um, in that little boom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, I've sort of memorized the whole thing and I hate golf. I can't play it. I don't have nothing to do with it. But You I know, we were actually course. talking with David, our, our David Thompson, when we spoke about landscape architecture exactly about golf golf course designs and what that falls into from a landscape point of view. So it's interesting that it comes up again. And um, yeah, that's quite impressive because I don't think that university students coming out in this decade can say that. No, that's right. It's it, that was a that was a learn on the job with sitting next to golf course architects at times and watch how they did it. Ask them a gazillion annoying questions and then start doing it yourself. Like you're not going to ever resolve the layout of the golf course. There, there is a speciality there, and they're really good at it. The golf course designers is a you know a little bit of science to what they do. Mm-hmm. We try and work out can we fit that in that seventy hectares. That that's what we're, we're and can we get the housing around it? Can we get the stormwater through it? And where does the clubhouse sit? The rest of it goes you know back to the golf course designer. It's a bit inter- you know interactive that whole process because. Um, you know, I was involved in the Brookwater, the early designs of Brookwater, mm-hmm. um, with the uh, uh, medalist group, Greg Norman, mm-hmm. and they are 100% about the golf course. And as soon as that golf course, they cross that golf course boundary, they really don't understand or care what happens beyond it. But as the urban designer, we did. We wanted to know, is that is that open space? Is that a road? Is that the back of somebody's house? And how far away from the pin is it? Um, because, yeah. you know, there's measurements of how far balls fly yeah. you know, from those spaces. And, um, you know, Brookwater is about selling a lot of residential land that happens to have a golf course, whereas the golf course designers, it's all about the golf course and there's some other stuff that's around it. Yeah. Um, you know, a different approach again. Yeah. I see. Like, And, and it's quite interesting. And um, I think we mentioned um, briefly 
before about um, putting design thinking and how that process comes into play. This is obviously a common factor and I think a jar, um, terminology that's been thrown around. Even it's coming into the other industries, but obviously design has design thinking has the word design in it. So there's a lot of assumptions about what that means and depending on the industry sometimes they have different labels and design thinking on its core human-centric design is uh, one of my specialities mm. but from a commercial level i'm not specializing in a very particular design how does that come into play as an urban designer yeah there's a uh it's sort of a uh it's a roller coaster ride with it with the design thinking uh, we start with um try and verify what we're doing you know what what are we working on what's the outcome what do people want that sounds really easy but that's actually one of the hardest things to do yeah because often people don't know they have no idea and we want to naturally jump into that solution and ideation without understanding absolutely and and you know for criticize architecture often architecture jumps into that way too early yeah um because they just want to draw and they just want to come up with an outcome exactly but it's like no maybe go back to back to the start and go what are they really trying what do they really want to do here so you sort of test test them a little bit and test you know do you really know what your site is do you really own that over there you know um, so there's that information gathering is a, is a big part of the start. And yep. the, the more accurate you get with your information gathering, the better the result. So people will say to me, even if I'm reviewing an existing design and they want your opinion on it, they'll say, look, I won't show you the previous master plan and I won't show you the uh, information that has already been gathered on this. And I'll go, well, why not? Show it to me. I can just I can distill out what I want to take out of it or not, but not showing me something is a bit silly because yeah. you've already paid for that. Of course. So why not take the benefit? It's not gonna it's not gonna skew what I'm gonna think about because yeah. I'm gonna follow my process and come up with with my outcome anyway mm. if that's what you want me to do. Um, so so there's information gathering, and then there's the it all gets a bit much. You know, it gets can get quite quite. Unwieldy, yeah. Lots of different opinions. Yeah. Lots, lots of meetings about where we're going, and you know, you might have strong personalities that stormwater's overriding, roading, or, or something in terms of what's going on, and then you start to problem solve, and that's when design, ideation. design thinking yep. is there. Um, and we certainly still find design thinking is best done hand drawn. Mm-hmm. It's quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, you can I can do ten options hand drawn that take somebody time to do one option properly on a computer. So you know, design thinking is about um, no idea is a bad idea. Uh, I I did the, the early structure planning work on North Lakes north of Brisbane, which is a thousand hectare development with a Scottish urban designer. Mm-hmm. So. Lawson McCowan, he would have been in his 60s when we, we started doing Northlakes and he'd been an urban designer for most of his life, wow. so 40 or 45 years of urban design. There you go. And Lawson was a demon for there's one more way, at this, there's one more go at this. So we could spend a whole day in a room designing a particular precinct or something and just when you think you've got it sorted, Lawson would always try and get one more out. Now, this is something that I actually encourage with my students, whether they're teachers or at a tertiary level, it's we focus on quantity because we feel like we need to exhaust options, even if their technology or the con, uh, the budget constraints or site constraints aren't there. We actually don't limit that at that point. 
Is that how it's done in this context? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. And we, we still use butter paper. And if you don't like the, if you really don't like the design, you'll screw the butter paper up. And yep. you'll probably go back to it about 10 minutes later and flatten out the butter paper and go, no, it wasn't such a bad idea. <laughs> See, that's, I feel like that's what my students are going to um, get as an anxiety relief from that, hearing that, because they do that. And sometimes they think doing trace paper is not what's done in the industry. Oh, no, it's very, very common for us now. Um, I, uh, we insisted that all of our urban designers were in a brand new building here designed by a fairly well-known architect in Brisbane and they couldn't believe that we still use drawing boards and we have a drawing board for every urban designer in this office. I love it. Um, and they are on butter paper. We're yep. doing master plan communities so we've got quite large pieces of paper. AO is normal for us. Yep. Um, which, uh, and when I brought the architects in, they were gobsmacked and, and actually honestly dismissed it for the first three versions of the plan and said, look, you may be asking for drawing boards but we're telling you you don't use them anymore. Wow. And we kept pointing out that we were actually the client and that they really should start listening to what we're asking. <laughs> um, and But I went to their office and I said, have you got any drawing boards in this office of 120 people? And they had one a three-size drawing board. So wow. clearly they didn't do any hand drawing. Yeah. Um, so they were all automated. Yeah. And maybe you could see it in their design because they couldn't problem solve how to fit a drawing board in a layout and they're an architect. I definitely think so because given I've come from that technology era, I've, I still believe there the technology hasn't quite caught up to replacing a hand drawing. And um, we were talking with one of the senior lecturers from QUT exactly on hand sketching skills and he he's of the same belief that regardless of how much technology will develop, I feel like there's always going to be that human touch that's almost irreplaceable. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, when you're distilling an enormous amount of information, and, and often that is, you know, what you're dealing with, you've got a blank page, you've got a whole layer of information sitting under that page of contours or services or something, you've got all the balance in your head of what you've read and what you've been talking about, and you've got a pen, and you have to resolve it on that piece of paper. Yeah. So it's very confronting, um, whereas if you're doing it on the computer, it's accurate, you, you're worried about the measurement. Is that 20 metres long or is that 21 metres long? When you've got the pen, you just draw it yeah. and you're not met, you go back and measure it later. Yeah. And we have a saying in here, the bigger the problem, the thicker the pen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> if you can't solve the problem, get a chunkier pen yeah. and bring it up a level. So try and stand back from it and resolve it. Bigger, don't be... Don't get into the detail too soon because if you drop into the detail, you're going to miss some really obvious things at the start. So I, I cheekily used to do that in my interviews with people. I'd put a pencil, a normal pen, mm -hmm. and a thick pen in front of them and see which one they'd choose. And if they chose the pencil, they wouldn't get the job. Wow, there you go. I think that's valuable advice. Like if, if you're a student struggling with... I think if you're a designer, I think we would all come across problems that we would be stuck for ideas. And then I think that's a valuable piece of advice, such a simple medium switch, but an effective technique. And I think for teachers listening, for students listening, whether it's their own project or if they're doing a classroom activity, I think that's perfect. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, and there's some really, I, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Desmond Brooks, who is an architect on the Gold Coast, mm -hmm. uh, Media 5, which is DBI design. Yep. And Desmond, uh, he had a multidisciplinary group, so architecture, interior, um, graphics, town planning, 
and landscape architecture. That was the five. Um, and he, if we were doing a master plan, and Southbank is a great example. So we were doing the competition design for Southbank and Desmond couldn't understand when we were forming the team why there was just town planners and architects involved and landscape architecture and why we didn't have the graphics and the interior design people on the team. So he insisted and he said, well, look, they think through a design process as well. So you're trying to create lots of little rooms in this park, so wouldn't you have an interior designer on your team? And so it did and they were wonderful. They, yeah. did, they did the yoga, uh, the um, uh, yoga area, the um, meditation area of Southbank. That was actually designed by an interior designer wow. in the original competition, uh, quite a well-known one on the, on the Gold Coast. So that, that design process that you follow, all of those disciplines actually still follow that process. So, And when you're sitting on a drawing board with somebody from that discipline, you learn a lot when you you design or draw with them. So I was really fortunate that I got to learn that way on, on the tools with people and learn their tricks. You know, um, if you get stuck on something, like every page north's up and, you know, we know where the sun rises, we know where the sun sets and we know where things drain. But if you're stuck on the design, turn the page upside down or inside out, walk away from it, come back to it and try again. And often you'll crack it because you've just changed the whole circumstance. I feel like my students need to be here because the number of times I've told them that North is up and they just, they argue with me on that. <laughs> North is always up, always up. There you go, you've heard it here first, actually for probably the 20th time, I've, I repeat it over and over again in my classrooms. <laughs> yeah, except if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. True. Um, uh, so, but solving that design problem, yeah, sometimes you've got to turn it back to front and inside out. You've got to go back to North up and check it yeah. at the end of it. But it's just a way of tricking your brain to go, oh, this is a new problem to solve. I was stuck on that old problem. I'll, I'll work it out on this one. And it's a, it's a trick that I was taught back in the day by interior designers and it really works. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes you actually, you're sub, letting, your, letting your subconscious work on the same problem, I think the number of times I've come up with working solutions in the middle of the night and I've been sleeping and... At first, I think I've made the rookie mistake of not writing it down and assuming that I will remember it in the morning. Doesn't work. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's it's exactly that. Giving yourself a break so you can see that problem with a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah, that works. That's valuable advice. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the values of design thinking. The main three is empathy, collaboration, and experimentation. And I understand how collaboration and experimentation comes into this uh, as an urban designer that's pivotal being in the center point when it comes to empathy can you clarify how that process takes place at that early research part before you start a problem solve do you actually spend time thinking about who the who the end user of that space might be and how detailed do you go into with empathizing with that end user oh significant that that's a really big part of what you do and every circumstance is is different and you actually have to uh tailor your empathy to that circumstance so how do i explain that um so if i'm uh master planning uh an estate uh, like a new expansion area in northern new south wales say for an example 
you really need to understand what's the dynamic behind the people there. Affordability is actually a massive issue currently in uh, the northern part of New South Wales. Even though it's a beautiful place and everyone wants to be there, there's some really poor outcomes occurring because of the lack of affordability. So you've got to get into that space with them and go, we're not, we're not trying to design here for um, the affluent or for expensive lots. We're actually, we're actually trying to diminish the cost of construction and diminish the outcome. We still want to get a good result, but we don't want to overshoot because we're trying to accommodate those people who can't find somewhere to live, not those people who already have somewhere to live. So you, you have to drop into that, that, that space as quickly as you can because it really flavours what you do and, and how you prosecute your other disciplines and, and alike. Um, whereas if you're doing a, a, a part of town, let's say a, a riverside park area, it's a bit broader, isn't it? You're, you're really trying to cover a broader part of the population. You're trying to account for everybody um, in every circumstance. So wheelchairs, um, kids on little bikes or young kids or elderly, you, you're trying to understand who it is you're designing for and how you're going to accommodate all those all those people. Um, so, yeah, that that's a really big part of that early information gathering of positioning where you are. We'll often do it when we're doing um, uh, urban regeneration or uh, infill or even master plan communities. We'll actually put up pictures of who we think is the target market and wait till somebody tells us otherwise and we just keep putting it up and putting it up and putting it up. Perfect, because that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you whether, obviously, uh, the term in commercial sense is the persona cards of um, and the stakeholder uh, stakeholder personas actually um, of what that target audience might look like giving it a face understanding their demographics what they would say do feel think and understanding at that core level giving them a face so it actually as a designer you develop a relationship with that person hypothetically yeah (laughs) but um, i'm so happy to hear that it happens at this level as well so when you're thinking about a very broad level um using that example you mentioned well how many persona cars might you have you might have a couple of hundred is that absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and you're always learning like i'm involved in a fairly large master plan community in western sydney and it's for a large public company and they were following their standard process and their standard model and their standard lot sizing and their standard price pointing and and the like. And they, they started to get market feedback and they realised that they were they had misread the market. They, they're getting more information in as they go, so they're getting wiser as the project goes along. And um, it had an extremely high percentage of uh, Indian buyers, like a, wow. a, a massive uh, percentage and uh, they hadn't really cottoned on to, to what those buyers were like. So, you know, in the start of the, the process, once they realised what was going on, um, they did a bit of research. And for us as designers, we were, we were having trouble tapping into that research. But the sales ladies who were working there were Indian. There so you we go. said, can we get the sales ladies to come into the, our design session? Yeah. And they were wonderful because... You know, often you're not you're not meant to have the designers with the salespeople, which is rubbish. The, you know, it's worked very effectively for me historically yeah. because the, you know they'll call a spade a shovel um, pretty early on <laughs> yeah. if they want it because they're the ones who are tasked with selling it at the end. So why wouldn't you ask them what they think yeah. will help them do that job early on? Uh, and they were they were fantastic, and it turned the design on its head. 
because they had to explain to us that, um, you know, north and east weren't the desired aspects and, in fact, it was west and south Mm -hmm. and explain to us why and were very compelling in their explanation and also a lot more dual occupancy living. So the, the number of bedrooms had increased because there were shared families and they, and they articulated it beautifully for us and it reset the whole project and we were able to um, to change the layout so it suited the people who wanted to live there, which is such a basic thing. Of course, yeah. But if you looked at it from the outside, you'd go, what are you people doing? Like, why, why are you turning all these known metrics on their head? Yeah. Well, because the people who wanted to live there had a particular outcome that they were seeking. And they had other nuances, you know, other things as well that, that we're able to work in yeah. in terms of open space and, and roading and a few other bits and pieces. But So it's a whole. You've got to take the whole. You know, just don't take the, yeah. the sales part. You of know, course. Say, Thank you very much, salespeople. Now we're going to deal with the public realm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's a classic example. That's something that, um, that uh, you know, I hadn't really experienced since back in the day of Feng Shui on the Gold Coast in the... Uh, late 80s, early 90s, where all our blocks were triangular so yep. that the wealth would run into the blocks, not out of the blocks. Yep. <laughs> Stuff like that. There you go. And, and honestly, as a designer, I think it adds more value to the end user and it makes you more aware of cultural things, religious things, social things, community things. And, and I feel like it all they're all aspects that a designer needs to consider. So that's perfect. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about how this technology change that's happening at the moment, we're almost in the middle of that shift at the moment with all those sketching skills and the way they're taught at a tertiary level. It's, there's almost a generational gap when it comes to this te- the technology evolved because it's evolving so rapidly. It's impacting almost every single different design discipline in its own way. Yep. How do you see technology such as virtual reality, augmented um, artificial intelligence impacting urban design in the current context and even in the 5 to 10, 20 years time? Yeah, it's a, it is a really interesting area. Uh, we confuse our, our graduates quite a lot because we ask them when we go through the interview process, uh, CAD, knowing CAD is a, is a must, uh, uh, all the Adobe packages is a must, now it's SketchUp as well yeah. and possibly even Lumion now. So we ask all these things and, and normally they're very well trained in of all of these packages. And then when they start day one, we say, now forget all that. Now you're <laughs> going to learn how to draw. Because yeah. if you can't draw and you can't explain this with your drawing skills... doesn't matter how good of a renderer you are. that is. Yeah. Um, so it's all about the ideas and the design thinking. Yeah. So then for three years at least, possibly five... We're getting, we're retraining them into that skill. How to, how to think in the third dimension. Yeah. Really difficult one because again, people aren't getting trained in it. So understanding the third dimension and being able to, as a designer, being able to regrade and remodel terrain without having an engineer do it in a 2D, 3D program. I can do it on my coffee table at home overnight if I need to. You need to have that skill to be able to think in the third dimension. Because when you're in a workshop or you're in a public forum and you're trying to explain it to people and you've only got a limited time, you can't go away in the back room and do it. You have to do it in front of people. Yeah. And then they'll understand it. And I don't mind if people watch me draw, I've got no problem. 
or hear me mutter to myself, swearing under my breath as I'm struggling with something. Yeah. They understand it and they get engaged and they're part of the solution. And, uh, you know, I'll often hand people a pen and go, well, if you know a better way, draw it. Um, you know, I'm not scared for you to grab the pen. Uh, it's not a competition on who's the best drawer. And when you're in workshops, it's about the ideas and getting them down and getting them out of people as effectively as you can while you've got them in a room. Yeah. Um, you know, often we'll... we'll Say if we're trying to resolve something, we'll we'll be in a room. We'll say we're not leaving this room until we've resolved it. Because if you've got those discipline and those people in the room, you've got to make the most of it. So, live skill is really important. Yeah. At that and being able to talk and engage people and look at them while you actually draw as well is another good skill. Because if you stop looking at them while you're drawing, they'll drift away. So, wow, I see. Okay. Yeah. So I can, you can normally do it with about six or eight people around mm-hmm. the table. If it gets more than that, you can't get eye contact enough to get the ideas out of them. Wow. See, I feel like this is a whole new set of skills it's, um, that needs to be added to the... Uh, there's, a, there's a terminology called 21st century skills that um, a lot of schools and universities are focusing on. It's, um, it's making students and the next generation future ready with the jobs that don't even exist now. And obviously, public speaking is one of the key aspects of that. But I feel like this is public sketching. <laughs> yeah, it's, we do a lot of we do a lot of live workshops. We can we can cram two months worth of backwards and forwardsing amongst consultants and clients into two days. Wow. So it's a very effective, cost-effective way to do it if you run it properly. Uh, but it is about engaging people, and um, you know, and I certainly know when I do workshops in North Queensland, they're a little bit more reserved. So the groups have got to be two and four, not six and eight yeah because they you know if you get a six or eight north queenslanders in a room no one says anything <laughs> um so you need to break it down whereas yeah northern new south wales everyone wants to talk i see so you've, you've got to deal with that yeah um uh and uh so that so it is personally we are designing spaces for people so you need to be able to interact with people to respond to what they need yeah you can't do that sitting behind a computer in the back of an office all the time. Yeah. You then need to go and do that afterwards. So... Is that where things such as virtual reality and AR come into play as absolutely. an end tool? Yeah. yeah. In, uh, they're an end tool. We do... We use some things as a mid tool. Mm-hmm. Like if we're struggling, you know, describing things or doing cross-sections, um, you know, it used to be years ago, every we describe, we tried to describe everything in the third dimension using cross-section. So we drew cross-section after cross-section. But that's a point in time on something that's mm-hmm. in a particular location with a particular set of circumstances. And when you're dealing with a large area, you know, I remember doing the cross-sections through South Bank. Wow. It's a long, it's a, yep. a long piece of land. Um, <laughs> and every single, every 10 metres, it was slightly different. Of course. Um, so, you know, the virtual mechanisms that you have now would have been a lot better to do that a lot more cost effective and got a lot better answer than punching cross sections out all over the place so you know that side of it it's a really good tool i think it helps add that fourth dimension into someone who's not in a design discipline to experience a design in an immersive context yeah yeah there's and there's i think we're still learning with it there's going to be some some learnings along the ways that often people will jump to that sort of polished end product too early when things aren't resolved as well. Mm-hmm. And you're giving the buying public it, uh, the opinion or the the idea that you've actually resolved, you know, what is that paving type? How high is that gutter? Where is the, you know, the 
the light pole and how is that affecting the street tree? Yeah. In the virtual world, you just plug it in and it looks great and it works. And it sets up a false level of expectation. It's not real um, yeah. because you haven't had those discipline. You haven't had the electrical contract to say, man, I need 10 metres away from that, not five metres, so that tree can't be there. Yeah. Um, that's interactive design processes and interactive design process. Just because the, the tool can put all that together doesn't mean it's resolved. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a lesson that everyone is learning at the moment because quite a few things have jumped ahead of where they possibly should be. Mm-hmm. And it takes time for the buyer expectation to flow through to say, hang on a minute, in that 3D thing, that building was 10 stories high. You know, why is it now only three? And I thought the front door was over there, not over there. Yeah. So, and I've bought across the road. So what's going on with that? Yeah. So we've got to go through that yet. It's coming. Yeah. Um, you know, we we uh, went through it with our with our hand drawn perspective sketches years ago. You know, we had to be quite careful with it. Yeah. About the expectations that you put because there's no hiding in a three D render. You, you are you, if you haven't resolved stuff. You see it. You see it. Yeah. Um, so you, you either have to make it up, and that's never good in our discipline to be making stuff up. Yeah. Um, so, but there's a lot of making stuff up going on at the moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's different if it's part of the design process because, you know, there's a caveat on it, so I haven't resolved this, I haven't documented it, so it's just really an idea at the moment, I'm testing it out. So, so that's I think it's that fair. second you go into the public realm and start to communicate an idea beyond that team involved, yeah. I think, and then if you're trying to hide stuff, I think that's dangerous. And I feel like a lot of um, young families who buy into houses based on the render they see on the Facebook ad or yeah. a billboard that they're driving past... They fall in love with it and the end product actually doesn't look like that anymore. And it always ends in disappointment. So I think you're, that's a valid piece of advice for, I think, all the young list, uh, designers that are listening to make sure that they're amazing, powerful tools, but use it at the right time. Use it wisely. Yep. Yes. Yep. With because, great power comes, yeah. comes great responsibility. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, no, and that's and there'll be other things in the technology that that you know tech, it advances very quickly um, in terms of how quick it will be to produce it. You know, the gaming influence on uh, the built form rendering is is amazing at the moment, and it can be quite fluid. But we often, we try and explain it. It's a design tool until the point that it's been approved. And there's construction. It's been determined that that is going to be the outcome, and then it's a marketing output or a or a sales output, and the, yeah. and the two are quite different. Um, we try and make them look different. Like again, you know, my example of buildings. You know, our buildings in our in our working tools are deliberately white and stick figures. Yeah. Because we really haven't resolved them. We don't know whether they're glass or they're wood or they've got a pitched roof or an not pitch we, we, that's not our thing but we know that it's three stories and it's got an awning out there so we'll show that bit and the rest of it's left blurry yeah but that looks terrible in a marketing render of course yeah <laughs> no i think look i even personally speaking i've learned a lot about what urban design has been about today and one of the last things that i want to ask is for anyone who's very keen on becoming an urban designer or want to learn more from today do you have any resources or websites or books or anything like that that someone can go and learn more about that you can recommend? Uh, yeah, look, there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, background material. Um, America produces a lot through the uh, New Urbanist 
group there. That's probably more master planning. Um, uh, architecturally, there's a, there's an enormous amount of material that you can have a look at that um, documents um, outcomes from from an architecture point of view. The UK and Europe are, are probably better at, at that side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose where I come from with it is to say, take a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Don't take a lot of one thing. Yep. Um, we cert- certainly see it with people who maybe go down the uh, new urbanist rabbit hole too quickly, too early, and start espousing things that don't really understand and don't and can't relate the context to Australia. You know, where we're at uh, 15, 20 dwellings per hectare in America is at 60 dwellings per hectare. There's a lot of subtle differences yep. in terms of what occurs in that. So I, I think urban design, it's really important to pick from a lot of sources. Don't get stuck in one particular area. You, you need to keep moving and keep looking at um, other other areas and other resources. I think that's valuable advice actually giving back given back to what you were you mentioned at the start of today that um, urban design being that central you know sphere where landscape and industrial yeah. uh, not industrial sorry um, architecture and um, town planning and all those different disciplines come together so a bit of everything it's a master um, what is it jack of all trades yeah exactly like landscape architects do love, really lovely at their drawings like their drawing styles and techniques and communication are fantastic architecture is really good on the third dimension and how they explain the third dimension town planning is really good on the words and if you care to have a look at some of the things they're writing there's actually some good stuff in there mm-hmm. but you know it's not as interesting sometimes as looking at a picture yep. um, and then you're, we're trying to combine all of that into you know, pinch from all those disciplines and try and combine it into into one area yeah now, Peter I think that's all the time we have for today thank you so much and I know that the listeners are going to have a ball with this one because there was so much information packed into this little time and um it's been, a, it's been a learning experience for myself as well, so thank you for giving up your time. No problems, Rashad. Nice to meet you. Likewise.